In life, there's much that seems uncertain to us. Concerning death, however, there can be no doubt. An old saying in Irish tradition has it that there's no herb or cure for death. And true as this may be, there are in our traditions and customs a multitude of structures, of rituals, of practices and beliefs drawn on by the community in order to come to terms with the death of a loved one and to see them safely pass over to the other side. You're very welcome to episode 33 of Blurini Belladish, the podcast from the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin. For this episode, I was honoured to have been able to spend some time with David McGowan, a funeral director and embalmer with a lifetime of experience in the death care profession. David is a proud Sligo native and is the owner and operator at Foley and McGowan Funeral Home Sligo and McGowan's Funeral Home Ballina. He's owner and lecturer at the Irish College of Funeral Directing and Embalming and the Death Care Academy located in Colony, County Sligo. And he studied embalming and funeral directing at Warsham College of Mortuary Science in Chicago in the USA. In 2019, David and his work was the subject of a profoundly life-affirming and deeply moving documentary film called The Funeral Director. And this film was aired on Ireland's national broadcaster, RTE, uh, and it's won several awards to date. I've left a link to the documentary in the description for this episode, and I strongly advise all listening to go and watch it. A quick word before we start. Throughout this episode, you'll hear a selection of audio material recorded as part of fieldwork collections housed at the National Folklore Collection, University College Dublin. Uh, for information regarding these pieces, so recording dates, uh, names of individuals speaking and so on, please see the description for the episode where I've left a time code along with tape references and more information regarding the pieces. I'd like to thank David for being so generous with his time and sitting to talk with me and also I'd like to thank the group Leiden who kindly have allowed me to play their beautiful rendition of the Lament of Ranwinche at the close of this episode. Um, I've left a link to their website in the description for the episode where you can go and support their work. David, you're welcome to Blarini. Um, death is chaos, death is total chaos and it's thrust upon us, it turns the world upside down and inside out um, and you work in that world, you and your colleagues, you step into that world and you guide bereaved families through a process about which naturally enough, uh, most of us have little to no idea. And I wonder just to start, if you could briefly tell us what it is that you do as a funeral director. Okay, you could describe it in several different ways and it, the word funeral director is a bit of a misnomer. You know, it, there's so many aspects to it. Um, there's the deceased part of it and there's the preparation of the body after death. Now, I use the word death, but I'm as the last decade I'm almost avoiding using that word. I don't believe in death. I don't believe we die. Death does in shockwaves around uh, the system. And uh, but to be honest, I believe I'm using the word passing because I think that's the proper thing that's my opinion I think we pass on um, to another place whether that place is a better place or not I don't know I believe it is so I rarely use the word death now as much as possible I'll avoid that um, so when the person passes on uh, there's a process that, that happens anything that's starved of oxygen will pass on and the human being is no different than the trees the flowers anything you know that's starved of oxygen and there's a process there 
that returns us back to where we come from. Now, that process can be forestalled or delayed. In the 70s and 80s, it was possible to have a funeral continue for three to four days without seeing any signs of this process happening. We came into the industry in 1974. By 1978, we've seen a change. We've seen a change the way the deceased that had passed on was changing visually. And we knew something had to be done. And the last life experience that I remember of that awful time was was having to be recalled back to a house where there was a wake for that person. And we had to leave the coffin outside of the door for the comfort of the people attending. Mm. Because the changes were so rapid. Now that would be about 77, 78. And that process started to increase. And I remember my father and myself went up and laid an old lady out up the country at 10 o'clock in the morning. At 11 o'clock that evening, the family arrived down at my father's door and said, something needs to be done. There was a lot of changes happening. He had no idea what to do, so he advised them go up to the doctor. Yeah. I'll never forget. He, that was his answer to them. Go up to Dr. McSharry. Because like most funeral directors at the time, they weren't qualified, they weren't trained, it was like a business attached to several other businesses. In the town, in the yeah. community. And there was, a, there was a reason for that. But we can talk about that later. I can mm-hmm. explain why the funeral businesses were attached to auctioneers and, yeah. um, you know, where you'd be buying fuel and shopkeepers and post offices was a big one. Mm. Uh, there's a reason for it mm-hmm. in rural Ireland. Mm. But... These changes, getting back to the to the first question, if I can get around. See, you could talk forever course, about this. Yeah, yeah. But I'm trying to answer your question and, and, and hope somebody will understand what I'm saying. The process of preparing a person today mm. is very important. There's a word there's a there's a process called embalming. Now embalming itself is a misnomer, mm. right? But it's a name that's tagged to what we do. Now, I don't know why that was done, because we do nothing like embalming. Hmm. If you Google or look it up, it'll refer to mummification. Mm-hmm. It'll refer to Egyptians and what the Egyptians. There is no family in rural Ireland that wants that procedure carried out to their loved one. <laughs> but I've tried to get the name changed in Europe. Hmm. And they've all come back to me and said, well, what would you put it to? I said, it's hygienic treatment. Hmm. The process is not taking the insides of the body out or the organs. Mm-hmm. What it is, and I try to explain it to the lay person, the person that's not used, is if if people haven't been on a drip themselves, they probably know somebody that has been. Hmm. It's a bag of fluid suspended at your bedside. There's a needle inserted into your vascular system and it's left there till you make a full recovery. The procedure for the so-called embalming mm. is something similar. So you don't be opening up the body mm-hmm. fully and removing organs and stuff like that. So that's how simple the procedure is. It's injecting a 
uh, a saline solution, a clear solution, with other chemicals in it that affect the protein in the cell. Now, it doesn't eliminate decomposition. It would be impossible to go against nature. You just can't, it cannot be done. Like, there are trillions of cells in your, in, in your body. And in order to mummify something, you need to get that fluid to every single cell, which is an impossibility, especially when your vascular system. So we make this injection. So really, it's a temporary preservation. What you do is you slow down the decomposition process until such time as the funeral is over. But it eventually will kick in. Because how do I know that? I've exhumed bodies after two to three years for different reasons. And I have been exposed to people who they say were in band and they were partially a skeleton. So the process is a temporary process. Now that's the preparation of the body because those changes that occur to a body after they pass away aren't very nice. And there's a lot of reasons for that. It's again, it's like everything else Anything starved of oxygen will die. When you're dying, you will have the... When that area is being starved of that oxygen, it changes colour. There's not the nicest smell of it. Like if you, if you bring a piece of meat and leave it on your table for a couple of days, uh, you'll see no changes in it. But maybe after the fourth day, you'll see it discoloured. And then maybe after the fifth day, you go... There's a smell in here. You can't see the gases because they've gone into the atmosphere. But if that piece of mash was within an intestine, like a balloon, that balloon will swell and swell and swell because the gas that's coming from that process, the decaying process, can't escape. So then it starts to get bigger. And that's when something starts to get bigger in your body, it puts pressure on other organs that contain fluid, like the stomach. Mm. And once that pressure is applied to the stomach area, the fluid or the contents in that organ will actually follow the same route as it did to come in, which means you will have fluids evacuating and hemorrhaging from the deceased. Now, I've seen that happen. Before the, the hygienic treatment that we call embalming became popular, let's say in the early 80s, in rural Ireland, I've gone out to houses where the daughters would be looking at their watches, waiting for me to come. I'd be called by other undertakers. And I often seen, in front of my eyes, those two girls sitting at the head of the coffin with a towel in their hand, taking turns, weeping the evacuation. So something had to be done to protect our culture. Now, some people say to me, why? Why did this not happen so much in the 60s or the early 70s? Now, there was no research ever done to it. But from a practical person working on the ground, it coincides with the introduction of modern medication like morphine and um, cortisone. And modern, uh, modern medicine. Yeah. Kind of so I think what happened there is where it would normally take a person three days after they passed away to show signs of this process, those signs now were appeared in four hours after they passed. Mm. So something needed to be done. Mm -hmm. 
So one person often said to me, an old funeral director over in the mountain, why did this never happen before? What's gone wrong? Yeah, yeah. What are we eating? What yeah. are taking? You know, people would ask you that question. And I remember being confused at the time myself. But I, I, I did over the years then research it a bit. And it falls in with what I just told you. But mm. well, I heard a yarn about a poor man that died. He had pails. Yes. And he was, you know, he was sitting up. You know, like, he died in the chair. At that time there was no hospitals or places that he died. Um, he was all clipped up. So when they were leaving him out, didn't the, the commander they tied him down, you know, of course, on a table. Tied him down level. And this good boy was at the end, and about five o'clock in the morning, there was, of course, at that time there used to be plenty of force and whiskey, as they were custom that time there used to be. But there was five or six lads at the end of the fire. They were all nearly gone unless five or six lads at the end. And what did he do, do you think, this fellow? Well, he went over and didn't he cut the cord. Oh. And up sits the man. And of course, when the... What did he do, he said, he only put a pipe in his mouth. They used to clay pipes that time at the... Clay pipes, you know, you get a clay pipe and what? You go around about all the places. Yes, at the wakes. put up at the wakes, yes. But he put the pipe in his mouth. I'm sure he made some noise, but they looked at them. When they saw him, so they'd like to kill one another going for the door. Well, you know, it was the terrible, wasn't it? Terrible left to see him sitting up, you know, on the pipe in his mouth. Well, would the cops be laid out on the bed? They were left out there on the bed. Well, they wouldn't lay but on the... And there was um, feathers, you know. Yes. Cheeks that time, don't you see? Well, they generally have a board or a door, and they have a door, don't you see? They'll never leave them out on the... because they wouldn't stiffen. Don't you see? You want to stiffen that. It should be very hard to put you in the coffin. Because when I'd raise a man with the feet, another man with the head, don't you see? He'd been down in two and every fall from us. <laughs> they'd never stiffen on a feather bed, don't you see? They'd always put a board under them, and very light cover over them. Well, you stiffen up. But the important thing here is, and one must not forget when you talk about someone's passing. I'm using the word pass now again, and I'll tell you why a little bit more down the road. The family are only interested. Our culture, ritual and traditions is to hold on to the body as long as possible and as quick as after they pass, the better. When they're in their turmoil of grief. Now, what one must remember, and I've been a great believer in this, the passing of somebody's loved one is the greatest human experience of loss that any human will ever experience in their lifetime. There's no other loss that I can think can replace that. When you lose your loved one, you can never talk to them, touch them, kiss them, argue with them, fight with them. It's a big void in your life. life. Mm -hmm. But then there's communities that will miss that person as well. And this is when I'm explaining about our culture, ritual, tradition to other 
cultures. They find it hard why we spend so much time with the body. And when I was in Chicago and working, they'd all say, oh, sure, you only have a wake for the party because you're great party people. Any excuse. And I took an insult to that because I had a bit of knowledge of the therapeutic reasons why we sit up and spend time with the deceased. Yes, I would say to them, there was music, song and dance. But you must remember, you turned the wheel back then. There were no radios, there were no discos, there were no um, restaurants, there were nothing like that. The only social social outlet they had was going to each each other's houses and listen to storytelling, song and dance. And they were referred to as rambling houses. So you would get into a deep rural area and you would meet people walking the roads and you'd be told, I just left Johnny Tom's house. Mary Riley is above flat out singing. Well, we just left Sonny, Sonny Riley's house and your man there, uh, Tommy Joe, has the box out and he's playing like hell. So, But what they did was they carried the story of the village from one house to another. And that's how the news went round. There was no Google, there was no internet, there was no papers, there was no dance halls, there was no races. This is how. So they rambled the roads. Like the old saying one time was, I've a rambling cow, because you go into every field in the place. So that's what they did. They walked the road. When a citizen of that parish passed away, Tommy Riley would be sent for, because he loved Tom, he loved Tommy Riley playing the books of Ordenmore. When he would go in and take that accordion out of his box, and the first after the first five or six notes he played, everybody in the room knew that the man in the coffin, or the woman, loved to hear him play. And that would shed a tear from every grown-haired man standing in the room. Yeah.
So that was their our therapy release for grief is shedding tears. It's one of our mechanisms that's within in our body that helps us over the whole. And when you when I explain when I heard those people abroad not understanding the wake, so I, I met a psychologist one time. They wrote a couple of books on grief, and they mentioned the Irish wake, referred to it on a few occasions. And again, drink was mentioned. Now I went and spoke to that person afterwards in Boston, and I asked them why do you keep referring to it as a drunken party. Do you really understand what a wake is? You know, it's a vigil. People spend time. You will not be allowed to leave that remains. Somebody will sit up with that person. Yes, there is music and there's song. And yes, there is food for the for the comfort of the people attending the, the wake. It's like off, it's like an offering that you'll be fed if you come. Uh, yeah, I'm sure it was on a few occasions. It was overdone maybe a bit. But it was very therapeutic. But in order to do that, you must have an open coffin. To see the body. To see yeah, the body. because again, I had the word, I had this argument with psychologists. And different cultures, like, for instance, England. Viewing of the body or spending time with them isn't as important to them as it is the Irish. But I have talked to a lot of people, like everybody knows, you know, if somebody passes away in the UK, it could be two weeks before they're buried. Yeah. Now, there is, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I researched that. A lot of us believe in ours down to administration. You must have a death registered there. You must have been cleared, and they work 9 to 5, Monday to 12 o'clock on a Friday. So if somebody dies on a Friday, you mightn't get to the coroner's office till Monday or Tuesday. Right? But it's not seen as a great urgency. So people are left to a couple of weeks, but there's no demand to get the body from the family. They accept this is how it's done. But like in Ireland, when you get a, a call that somebody has passed away, before you get into your arrangements, it's like, when we can we have mum back at the house? Yeah. So that's the difference. So that's why it's so important. But to get to that question, to answer, to give you a bit of an explanation, the psychologists that wrote about the cultures there are now saying, why do the Irish grieve better than anybody else in the world. Mm. The wake. The spending time with the body. Mm. Why well, don't you go on to the sadder end of, of life, both wakes and funerals? Yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, there was a lot of superstitions and traditions attached to, to wakes, wasn't there? Yes, there was, yes. Couldn't come home alone. You wouldn't be allowed home alone at all? No, you couldn't. You weren't supposed to come home alone from a wake at all. Mm-hmm. Well, who would lay out the corpse? At that time, when a person died? Ah, the people that had been living in the house with them and the neighbours. The neighbours. There were yeah. no particular people like that were supposed to be handy. Well, there might be a handy like... woman in the village. If there were, usually there was one particular good neighbour, you know. Yeah. And that one would be called upon for every sad occasion. Because you'll always find one person more generous than another in, yes. in charity or right. other things, you see. So that one would be always called upon, all right. Mm-hmm. It would be surely the one or two people in one village that would do all that. Yeah. That's right. Well, where, where would they lay out the corpse then? In, in, no, in the old days now? Yes, in, in uh, the coffin. And if it were the head of the house, his head would go towards the back door. Oh. And his feet towards the front. But if it was one of the family, they would go by the window, the front window. 
are the mother. If it was the mother, how would she be? No, I couldn't tell you about the mother. But I'd imagine the mother would go to the back door. She'd be one of the heads of the house, you know. I'd say she would because I remember my grandmother, the Lord of Mercy. She was put at the back door. And I remember the women to say, well, where would we put her? To my father, the Lord of Mercy. And he says, well, she's the head of the house. He says, put her says, to the back door. And they did. And then when they'd put them up on a table, you know, they used to put them. Oh, on the table? On a table, yes. In the coffin? No, not at all. Covered with a sheet or... No, the habit. They'd have the habit on them, on the t on a table. But, uh, well, a table would hardly be long enough. But they can put another onto it. Oh, I see, yes. Tooth. Yes. And oh, there was one table in our village that used to go into every house. They had a long table, and that that served every house in the village. Now, do you see, that table would be borrowed for the occasion. I see, and they covered the table then with, with the... Uh, over, up over the corpse, all that would be in white, white sheets, and they're not beautiful, white lace coming down out of them. You could see nothing but white over the side of the corpse. And the corpse would be laid on a table, as I told you, with the habit. And... Um, then when they would lay, have the cop, the corpse laid out, they'd start and they'd have a fine round of crying over that corpse, immediately. I see. Well, were there special criers? No, not in my time. It was genuine crying. It was genuine. Did they have any words when crying? <laughs> they had a couple of words of their own, you know, yes. A couple of words of their own, yes. What, would they, they sort of, uh, would they used to sort of speak to the corpse, like, would they talk to the corpse or anything? Well, they would, that speaks to them in, the, in their own name, you know. I see. That, that kind of way, yes. Did, did you do it yourself? I mean, I always look upon this as if it was the kind of thing that was being done, that you didn't have to cry, really, but you just assisted people. Was that right? I mean, I mean, it's all right with your near relative, certainly, you would cry. Yes. I mean, naturally. Yes. But if somebody else in the village died, that's, well... Yes, that is true. They were to all assist each other. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that done. Yeah. I saw that done in an uncle's house of mine, and when one would go to the corpse to cry, all the well-wishers would come along well and wishes, help, help out along. Yeah. That's true. Whether they were sincere about it or not. Whether they were sincere about it or not is <laughs> to be questioned. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is true. I saw that all right. They would all come and have a chorus. I see. Yes, that is true. Ich 
But in order to do that, you agree that that's healthy, you agree that that's good, you agree you're helping out the people in the worst time of their life. Well, then it must be important also that the person that has passed away looks as close to themselves, well-dressed, and in a comfortable position in the coffin. So that's that part of the process. The rest of the, the second part of the process is funeral directing. And really... And I don't want to insult anybody, but that part of it is just no different than an event manager. Mm. You organise a time to be there, to be there. You provide the vehicles to do that. You organise obituary obituaries and papers. You organise music and you organise church. Now, in gone by days, people did that themselves. Mm. But you won't have a death... I did a bit of research. It's about one in 11 years within a family unit that you'll have a death closely associated. Okay. So you're not used to making a few religions. No. no so happens. what you do is you go down to some person that's used to doing it. Mm. And they call them funeral directors. Because they're doing it weekly. Mm. So they know who to ring to get a grave dug. They know who to get ring to get flowers. They know who to ring to get music. They know how to, because they're doing it. So that's the funeral directing aspect. So there's two parts to it. There's the preparation of the person that has passed away, so we can let the, allow the family spend some time with the person that has passed in a comfortable environment, mm-hmm. where there are not two daughters sitting at the head of the coffin with two towels wiping, and um, the hemorrhage that's caused by the whole process. Mm-hmm. And when it, the process is explained to people, they don't seem to seem it as too bad then when it's explained to them. Because it has never been explained properly to people, mm. the procedure. And because the name of a mammy is given to it, like, it, you can understand why people would go, no, I don't no want that, I don't want that done. <clears throat> yeah. mm. Nobody will ever come to your, I do tell my students, nobody will ever come to your funeral door and knock on your door and say, my mother has passed away, I want her mummified. They ain't going to happen. They're not a bit interested in that. But we do want mummy looking well. Yeah, yeah. So whatever you do, yeah. do it. Because she deserves it. Mm. So there's the two parts. And that you asked me, um, I'm in the funeral business, and you asked me there before we start to explain what I do. That's exactly what I do. I prepare the deceased after they pass, and I become an event manager for the rest, other portion of it. Not everybody can do both. I do both. Not every funeral director does both. He will apply the services of an embalmer to come in and do that. That's what they call themselves, embalmers. I tried to change the name at a meeting in Dublin one time. I was lucky to get out the door with my life. 
Two fellas came up to me. You said I'm not an embalmer. I said, no, you're not. I've never seen a fellow embalmed around my life. I've never seen one. Or I don't know anybody that has ever embalmed. <laughs> I do. Are you kidding me? You know, they got annoyed because... It's, it's their life. It's a threat. It's a, uh, but threat I think they like the name that I'm a special person in the community like. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, you walk into the pub tonight, you'll see four hairdressers, you'll see five plumbers, you'll see six electricians. I won't see too many in Bamworth. <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, but I wish there would, and there will come a day, because young kids now are studying biology and science. Mm. And someday a funeral director will go into a house and he'll say, and now I must take your mum away to be embalmed. And they'll challenge him on that. Mm. They'll say, That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening. You know. So. That's what I do day in, day out, and um, I teach the process as well. You were, before we started this evening, you'd mentioned something that I've come across in the folklore archive and a lot of the material. It describes the practicalities before the hygienic process that you refer to as embalming, that you mentioned, when it was done in the community, by the community, and there's this idea of, um, you mentioned like musicians and singers come to the wake house. Mm. But also, there's a coming together of the community because obviously, you know, the family, the loved ones are in a state of absolute shock and turmoil and everything's inside out, inside out and upside down. But things like the body needs to be prepared. And often it was the tradition that the women used wash and shave the corpse. Was that? Did you hear of that? Yeah, yeah. In 1974, when my father took over the business, I seen plenty of that at that time. And it would be, we would, um, we would get the call. Somebody has passed away. And the first thing my father said is, uh, the priest, did you call the priest? And did you go up to the post office to give the death notice? So These were the first things? There was the thing, yeah. So you wouldn't move a person out of a house unless they were anointed. by the, the extra, extra monction was the... the yeah. The, yeah. And okay. they'd be the first questions that they'd be asked, right? And then about six men would come in. And we had a bar in the village because most funeral businesses were attached to pubs because, and shops because they had food and they had beer and drink. They had all the stuff in one place. It was like a one-stop shop the requirements for the wake and he had a hearse. So uh, I remember standing back at one stage. We don't do anything with the preparation of the body. We do very little with the acknowledgements. We don't do anything with music. So basically, we're dead people, taxi drivers. We bring them from one place, because when we arrive out of the house, all the women would be in the house cleaning. And I remember a thing in the pub, when I go back to the pub when the job was done. Now, before I go there, the women at the parish would be in doing all the cleaning and the washing of the body. The men would congregate out in the garden, smoking their pipes and whatever. And then when it was time, they'd hop on their bicycles and hit for the funeral director, the pub or the shop. And as I said to you, it was a thirsty job. So there were a lot of offers to go and pick the coffin. But that was a tough job. It wasn't a woman's job. Mm. But I remember they'd arrive into the bar and before they'd ever pick a coffin, like there'd be about three rounds of drink got at this stage. And the publican, of course, would, or the funeral director, would stand them, the first one, that was the word. Mm-hmm. I'm standing ye this drink. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the word stand came from, but that was the word that was used in our pub. So there'd be about four drinks, rounds of drinks, stood before the coffin would be picked. It was like a big ordeal. So then we would 
let them into a shed out at the back of the house pub and they'd pick a coffin and they'd be choosing. Normally, it would be an oak coffin because in rural Ireland it was, if you weren't buried in an oak coffin, you weren't buried decent. That's the way it was looked upon. If, if you weren't buried in an oak coffin, you were a pauper. That was the way they were looked at. And some villages, it, it had to be a casket. But it was all about keeping up with the Joneses. As Mrs. Riley was buried in a casket, we can't be buried, any, Mrs. Thompson can't be buried any less. And that was basically it. I, used to, I heard those words being said. We would come back up and there'd be another drink got. And we would have a list from one of the relatives of two, ten, six pound a ham, 12 loaves, 30 glasses, uh, 20 stools, bread, three bottles of powers, three bottles of scotch, a bottle of port wine for the women, and three big large bottles of lemonade. Three cases of harp, three cases of Guinness, three cases of Smithics. It was a trailer you need being there. Yeah. It was crazy. It was tobacco a thing then as well? Oh yeah. Big... Yeah, yeah. 200 major, 200 cards and 200 gold leaf. Yeah. So that would always, and that would be the order nearly on every funeral. Yes. Well, for many people went for the brilliant thing. Well, generally three. Three men, was Yes, and three went to, to make the grave. Always men, was it? Hmm? Was it always men went for the grave? Oh, it was always men that went for the burying. Mm. And did they go on a horse and cart? Hmm? Horse and cart? Horse and cart, or a nurse and cart, or anything like that. Where well, did they go from here, was it that long, or? Oh, they used to go over there to Lake Harrow, because what's it want there? That's right. They used to... Who, was the, who had a pub there? Well, um, Bertie O'Brien had it there. But up to very lately, they used to go on by to get the boards the same day for making the cotton. Uh, who would they get them? Well, they'd get them there in the too. That's all. There was a man <coughs> named Handley, around here, Boss Handley, they used to call him. He was a great carpenter. He'd pay about six bob for the, all the boards that would make the cotton. Uh. And he was very fond of a drop of liquor, too, the poor old boss. If he wanted to be dead, you know, he'd land and start to go from the barn or someplace and begin to make the cotton. Every four or five minutes, don't you see, he'd get a glass of dry and he'd come in with his tape and he'd meet you at the person that was dead, you know, and it wasn't necessary at all. <laughs> but you know, he knew well when he'd come in. <laughs> that he was sure to get a glass. <laughs> and there would be tobacco. And pipes. I saw four grocer pipes coming into our house with one the funeral. Clay pipes. Yes. And, and um, I don't know how many pounds of tobacco. Oh, over 20. And there would be a few of the neighbours in, out in the barn with this tobacco on pipes, filling the pipes and sending them in. I see. And everybody would get a pipe and filled with tobacco. You used to say anything when they get the pipe? Oh, yes, way. definitely. The Lord of mercy on the dead. <laughs> Straight away. Yes. Had they any other prayer with that, I wonder? Do they have any other prayer besides saying the Lord of mercy on the dead? Add any other people to it at all? I suppose they did. Some of the old people, perhaps. And I suppose they did. You know, yeah. It was kind of winning in my time a bit, you know. I suppose it was yes. going. Yes, yeah. but I saw that much. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And that's the tradition that they used to have them making longer. And they made snuff, little, a little saucer of snuff and tobacco. Yeah. It was a man would be tobacco, a woman would be snuff, and pipe, tobacco and pipes. And the people would go in to wake them. There'd be a house be full of lads and at a wake. Lads used to go to the wake and they'd play all sorts of gamble. Right? Play cards and sing. There'd be a beer going round, just like a public house. Candles burning. There were, there were different... Now they'd wake them in their bed. That's right. So um, put a white quilt over them. And then bed the same as if they were sleeping. There's no wakes now. They're not allowed to go out to wakes, except in the daytime. They brought to the chapel now, the next night, the day. Oh, yes, indeed. Things have changed mm-hmm. an awful lot since then. They've changed. It was long ago. But then the question we would ask then is, is the body over bo- laid out yet? Yet the women were there when we left. So if you're out about five o'clock, so we'd arrive at five o'clock and the person would be on the bed, all washed and whatever. And then when we come back to the pub, the pub would be full and the neighbours of the community would be drinking in the pub and they'd have heard of the debt because bad news travels fast and they'd all know within the community. But there's several words that would come in. Is she overboard yet? Is he overboard? I never knew what that meant, overboard. But that would be the word that would be there. Is Mrs. Riley over... I heard Mrs. Riley's dead, yeah. Or Tom Riley or Tom Don, whatever his name. Whoever it be. Yeah, is he overboard yet? Overboard meant... Literally... Don't... Um, no. Yeah, well, the reason that that's the question. Don't go near the house when the women will be cleaning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you'd be told, get out of the way. Hmm. There'd be no comfort. Because you sit down at a wake and you tell the story about the person. Mm-hmm. I heard one fellow say one time... And Jesus, he was a great man to drive a messy Ferguson. <laughs> like, they, they'd come up with things, like, and the body. But you wouldn't get that if the women were still doing the cleaning. Mm-hmm. You'd be told, stand outside and go, look, we're busy here. It's, everybody yeah. wants to seem busy. Now, the overboard came that they were coffined and the wake had started. Yeah. Right? Now, where I think it came from was to be placed on a board to do the preparation. To usually take down the door or something like that. It'd be put on two barrels and you'd lay the corpse out and you'd wash them there. Mm. And that was the word was, is the person overboard? Mm-hmm. Were they over on the board yet? Mm. I think. Yeah. And somebody else in my research, an old man told me, it was over the board of the coffin. Mm-hmm. Overboard was into the box. Yeah. You weren't outside the box. Mm. Now, which two is right, I don't know. Mm. They came from two different people. Mm. I did, I handled the corpse myself, I didn't wash them, mm. but it didn't chill me to the bones and lift the corpse up. I had the experience of two women dressed a woman, mm. and they took her onto the floor to dress out the bed yeah. and clean sheets. Now they wanted her up off the floor, back on the bed, and it didn't upset me. You had to help? To lift the woman, the cold corpse, off the floor onto the bed. Mm. But I didn't do it professionally. I know. 
See, not everyone could handle a call card. It wasn't a professional job. No. No. A neighbour that was used yeah. to handling yeah. sick children, dying women, dying yeah. men. That's and right. it didn't upset her nerves or her stomach mm. to handle a corpse. But a special whiskey for her then? No, again, she accepted that as an act of charity. She yeah. was doing something that you or I might go and visit sick people in hospital. Yeah. It was an act of charity, yeah. she thought. But was there not a special glass laid aside for Ah, uh, no, 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 no. No, Mrs. Jones, our supposition say, Mrs. Jones will get the corpse ready. Mm. But Mrs. Jones would be dead and buried herself yeah. next week. It wasn't an accepted yeah. profession. I know, I know. Nor a job. A neighbour. Yeah, it was just a neighbourly act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the woman that would do it would be kind of used to death. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't frightened of handling a cold corpse, straightening the legs, putting pennies on the oil. That's okay. To That's close right. them, you see. Yeah, yeah. Well, how about the washing of the corpse and the laying out of the corpse? Well, there was, well, it was a, a woman that was dead. Well, the generalities women that you should do it anyway. Well, they would wash them. Who would wash the yes. corpse? Well, any, any neighbour or this. Anybody? Were there special any, people any, in the village? No, there wasn't any neighbour, a woman, a friend, would be, they'd be there to do that. They'd leave them out the corpse, then, but they always washed. And it was usually women that did the washing? Usually women that done it. <coughs> and of course they fixed up the sheets and all around the corpse. Where would the sheets be fixed? Around the bed. You see, at the both ends and uh, in at the wall, but it was left open at the front. And there was a little table then left in the front, and there was um, candles lit on that. How many? Six. Was the set, wasn't it? Yes. <coughs> well, tell me this while they were washing, where would they wash the corpse? Where would the corpse be left while they were washing the corpse? Well, Harry did have a basin of water there in the room wherever the person would die. Yes. And the corpse would be washed. Well, where would the corpse be laid while they were washing them? Well, no, I didn't ever see the washing one in my life. Would it be. Probably did. Would they ever put it down on straw? Well, no, I never seen any straw going in. I'd likely to leave it out on some sort of a mattress. I saw them with washing the douches when you're just rubber and rubber. Two, so they weren't going to water the poor creature that way after dying. She shaved the man. Hmm? She shaved the man. Oh, they, they used to shave. If he had beard, they'd shave them. I actually often shaved the dead man. Did you? I did. Yeah. I did. And mind you, he never said a hair person. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you get the razor then when you shaved? Well, I got one. It was customary to bring the razor. And they used to be put in a habit, was often the practice, wasn't it? I mean, yeah. Unless, obviously, you don't, you, that's not something you'd see regularly now. I rarely use them. Yeah. Yeah. Blue for a woman, brown for a man. Right. And white for an atheist. <laughs> and did you ever hear, I, I read in accounts in the manuscripts about the right hand being put into the habit first. Yeah. It's important that that was put in. Oh, yeah. And uh, if the local clergy in the in the parish knew that you had a brown habit on on a person that wasn't we'll say attending mass and things like that we to be said from the altar so you had to be very careful and be on your toes what you did and what you presented yeah because you'd be hauled over the coals over it yeah yeah so they they were but in every little parish in rural Ireland had all little differences of course yeah do you know you know certain cemeteries you wouldn't open a grave on a monday 
Yeah, that was common. Why, why was that? Apparently? Because you had to be opened again within 12 months. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there are four parishes that I know that still hold on to that tra- tradition that I serve in. But if you go out on the Sunday and put a spade in it, and t- as they were, they used, turn aside. Mm-hmm. If you turn aside on it, it's opened. Yeah. So you can't be accused on the Monday then mm-hmm. that you disrespected the ritual and the, the thing. Mm-hmm. So that still goes on. Another symmetry, they have to carry them around the outside of the wall once before they actually go into the graveyard. Yeah, that's a really common one, no shortcut mm. to a graveyard. That's, yeah. That was, that was very, um, quite a common tradition. That's that. right. Have you, did you ever see... Um, the big one is uh, you face the east. Yeah. Yeah. That comes from you face the rising sun. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not facing the rising sun, but then again, the way symmetries are opened and managed today... They're burying them in every, every direction. There's no consideration. A few old cemeteries still stick to the old Because the altar points east, I think, as well. Yeah. Well, in, in the, it's, it makes yeah, natural When sense, I was studying the Muslim tradition, um, they faced, the person faces Mecca. Mm. But we were doing an interment in Sligo Cemetery and there was an argument about what way. Now, I knew that all the people in Sligo Cemetery were facing the east, or as close to it as possible. So I said to them at that meeting in the cemetery, that's the direction which one. And they were arguing with me, this, that and the other. Anyway, they took out their iPhone, they left down it on the, on the, on the ground and turned down the compass. And sure enough, that's it was right. exactly... But the point here is, it was the same direction as we face. Mm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was very funny. Yeah. So they just called it something different. Mm. So every every tradition and ritual and culture, cultures especially, should be respected. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But I also know that Irish people would more appreciate what we do. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't mean it's, us as funeral. I mean the people, <sighs> the send off that we give people after they pass. It's it's so important. It's 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 because death is or when people pass away or loved ones pass on it's such chaos and turmoil that the more structures we can put in place symbolic structures we can put in place around that process to put a bit of order on it to give some boundary to it the better it is for for all of us you know what I mean and that coming together of community you're never left alone a neighbour will be in the house with the body the body's never left alone Mm. Um, that the community comes together that there's the idea of you know, the, the, again, the metal people coming in with um, supplies and things for mm. the wake. It's a huge, even following the casket, the community coming to the graveyard, walking to the graveyard mm. with, with the casket. You don't get that now in bigger cities like London and I'd say even Dublin. Like there'd be, you know, the our average attendance at a funeral pre-COVID would be a thousand people and up to three thousand. And when I tell that to people in America and everywhere else, that that's the norm for us, they go, how do you, why do you do that? And I said, that's our culture. That's our ritual. There's a mechanism there. That's a mechanism put in place and it gives the families, the bereaved, a lot of solace and comfort. And um, I said, it's probably one of the things that will kickstart the grieving process. Everybody de- de- grieves differently. And I'm not going to force my opinion on anybody 
I know there are six stages there, your acceptance, your from one to six. My 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 um opinion on that is it shouldn't be a number thing. Because I've seen number six coming before number one. Coming in a different order, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um and um but I do know people attending funerals and coming and shaking hands and hugging with people and telling a little yarn or a story. I do know that's very therapeutic to a grieving family. I do know. This is a family now that's going to try and get some sort of normality back into their lives when their loved one is gone. There's no more visits. There's no more talking. Mm. There's no more whatever. That's a big loss and a big miss. Those are the little mechanisms that are in place that help that family get through that awful time. Yeah. And I, what I say to families, I'd hear a family often, people coming in, uh, you know, uh, time you'll get, time, time you'll kill. That's the worst thing you could say to a grieving family. Mm. Because grief never goes away, mm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, I do, what, I do think you learn to live with it. Yeah. I know a woman that's still wearing black clothes after five years. And I sat down with her and I had a chat with her. And do you know what she told me? She just told me she just didn't want to lose her grief. Yeah. And you know, when she, when she said that to me, I got a bit of a shock. Mm. Why would somebody not? But I know. It's a last letting go, isn't it? Yes, yeah. correct, yeah. yeah. She was enjoying her grief and she felt it was respectful to the person who passed away that I would grieve close. so long for you. And then there's the people that won't grieve during the funeral times either. I see that all the time. And I try to advise the people. And they wonder what's wrong with them. And I tell them, I said, you got too involved in the event management of the funeral. You were busy, 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 busy. And you didn't time, get time. The problem here with you, yeah. you're going to grieve on your own mm. without a body. Mm-hmm. The worst type of grieving that you can get. Mm. And it happened myself. I didn't grieve during my father's funeral at all. I was four days. And like everybody, I was going, everyone else around me is crying. What the hell is wrong with me? Yeah. But I was trying to arrange this, 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 this and that. And my, I used the word, my grief was stolen off me. Yeah. For the period, period of the funeral. But my God, one thing I can tell you for sure, nobody escapes it. No. Because I was sitting on my own in the house yeah. about six weeks later and that house nearly came down on top of me yeah I know what you mean it's like after the structure where there's such a regimented rhythm to the structures of the wake and the processes and the ritual and it's then on a Tuesday afternoon when you're standing in the post office do you know what I mean and, and the crowd has dispersed and gone and that's when you get yeah. hit over the head you're yeah, on your own like that. Yeah. yeah yeah it's a lot more therapeutic to a grieve around the body from a psychological point of view mm. because when you see the person and this is kind of I had this chat with the English psychologists who are writing about the, and making fun of the Irish wake and all that you lock somebody up in a fridge for two weeks after they passed away and there's no access or there's no view into that person that would be to administration or whatever the delay is Okay. The people that's gone through the worst loss ever they'll experience in their life doesn't get to see the person. Seeing is believing. It's not real in a way, yeah. If you see the person 
It'll remind you of so many things. It'll remind you of being brought to the match. It'll be remind you of being brought to the mart. It'll remind you of the good times and the bad times. And there's a whole thing. If you don't see, you have the thoughts to accumulate in your head. But there's so many other things pulling at you in your head. Mm. You miss the important one. Where if the body is in front of you, and you're on their own in the room, you can curse them, you can laugh at them, mm. you can tell them how mad you were, how disappointed you were with them, you can tell them how thankful you were, Yeah. if you're looking at them. And again, that's the importance of preparing the deceased. Because if you believe and agree with me on all of those things, you must also agree with me that that person must be laid out properly to give to suck you in. To allow that to happen Correct. unimpeded. Yeah. 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 One of the things associated with all, all human cultures is the idea of the existence of a soul or a kind of an animating force, a spirit that can that can go and return. And I wonder if you have any any comments or Loads. <laughs> now we're getting into the nitty gritty of it. <laughs> now we're talking about the spirit. Yeah. Well, of course, there has to be a reason for doing everything. Mm. Okay? I believe... Yeah, I do see things at funerals and during the funeral period. You don't spend 40 years in the business without seeing something. Number one, the one thing I totally believe in, and I don't mind saying to people, I told you before, I don't like forcing my opinion on anybody. But one opinion I have, and I stand behind it, and it's far been spending so much time among bereaved people and people that have passed away, that the spiritual world is much greater than the one down here. Let you believe that. Because things I've seen, you couldn't say were coincidences. Too many of them. And... Those little rich, I won't say rituals, traditions came from somewhere. Somebody else seen those things. The spirit people will say that, you know, when you pass away, there's the resemblance of your body there. That's what it is. And that's why it's important to keep it that way for the grieving and the wake and to maintain it in that. But yet the spirit is there. I believe the spirit is I believe the spirit is around for a good while after the person passes on. I think there's a big presence. I've plenty I've experienced a lot of things. Well tell me, ma'am, did you ever hear any stories about people coming back again that have died? Oh me and I did. did yeah, you? I often heard him. Uh, hundreds of times. Is that right? Did you ever hear anything about people who had left a debt, you know, money to pay, that they've come back and tell their friends or relatives to pay uh, the money? Never yeah. heard anything like that, did you? Yeah, I did often hear tell of that. Did you? There was a man died up there um, along the Mullingar Road, the one with the main road. His name was Smith. And... Jack Keegan. They're all dead now. I've lost them. Uh, 
Jack, uh, Keegan worked, worked him. Arthur Smith was the man's name. He was a big farmer. And he worked with him anyway as a labourer. And he came, he was coming home this night. He was, this man was dead, years dead. But again, he, he used to appeal to him every night. And he went to the priest and he told the priest that uh, he was, there must be something wrong with him. So he got him to, the priest went with him this night and questioned the, the dead man. And there was a debt owing, owing to some landowner, you know, no like a shop, something like that. He owed a debt, and he wanted it to be paid. And would Jack see the man that he owed the money to, and see that it'd be paid, or he couldn't go to heaven until it'd be paid. That's all ever I heard. That was told to me when I only a child. I used to hear them. He wasn't uh, wasn't at peace with God yes. until the debt had been paid. If you're put in, on in purgatory, yes. if you're put in purgatory, well, pur purgatory is a earth. And the souls are traveling through the earth as thick as the blades of grass is growing in the field. So there. Well, you can't tell where you're stationed. You know what I mean? You can't tell where you're stationed. Where you're put to, to, yes. to put in your time in this world before you get released to another place. Well, perhaps all souls need. My uncle or my aunt or relations could come in here and sit at that fire. You wouldn't see them. Eh? That's right. Eh? Well, that's the Irish belief, all right, and that's the case. Ah. You see, you could, sit, you could be sitting there at that fire. Well, you wouldn't see it. That's right. Well, the idea is put on a, a nice fire on a clean hearthstone. Well, do you believe yourself that they do that? That that does happen? Certainly it happens. Certainly. And you believe, of course, that when all souls day, they are released for the day. Released for the day. But you see, the job is, when you, a person dies, well, you can't tell till you meet the mighty where you're going to land. You see, you don't know where you're going to land till he gives you the sa the <laughs> sentence. You don't know where you're going to land till he passes the sentence on you. Well, then, uh, you were, you well if he turns about and puts you into purgatory, well, you have to spend there so long before you're released. See? You have to spend so long. Did you ever hear a ghost of a living person being seen? I did. First they used to call that the fetch, I think they used to call it. My father's seen my... My I own. haven't heard that now around here, like. Well, if it wasn't him, it was his fetch, you know, with the way that they appeared, like. Right. Yes, whether they were sick or bad, before the day. I often heard of that. My father. My father saw his brother-in-law. 
and he was just as near to him, he was at the dying. And but said the fairies brought him to. He was as near to him as that door, and uh, he was his good clothes, and he all dressed up as he was in real life, and he passed as near to my father as that door, and he went on a back over from the house about that lengthy out of the little boring up there, and another little boring up to the land, and he disappeared after that. But he was dead at the time, was Oh, he? dead and buried. If, Good while, a few months or maybe a year, but he was dead and buried at the time. A fine young man, and they, and they said the fairies had something to do with that, all right, but no one could tell. But well, that was a brother of my mother's. But that happened, all right. Well, I have the girl telling me it's not lies at all. She's dead now. She was high up in the house between this and Manor Hamilton. He was a does in uh, 1915. Oh, indeed, I was a strong lad at this time. And she says, I was here at the minor Collins, she says. And he said, that two servant girls. And uh, minor came in this evening, it was in 1915, and he had two sons at the war, the 1914 war. There were two horse soldiers. And he says to this lassie Annie, he was on it, and he says, my two sons, he says, I'm... I'm going to chat them the night they're coming back, he says, from the grave, he says. And the two horses that were, that were, sh that were shot on, he says, it's them they'll be riding. Yes, she says, I near fainted, and I was upstairs in the house. All the houses to be had yet in a good one. But uh, I went upstairs, she says, and I said I'd go to bed. I was, I was trembling with fear. And it was a wonderful bright moonlight night, and... The book was laying, there was a big iron gate at the door and a road up from the main road up to the house for the one. She looked out and here she sees these two white horses come and galloping like that up to the gate. And he walked down and he shook hands with the two of them. And they chatted for a few minutes and they disappeared like that. And he came in and he says, I was talking to me two sons, he says. And it wasn't 12 o'clock. Well, he used to work spiritually. You could talk to the dead. But the spirit is around for a long time. I also believe the spirit will move away somewhere else. Now, I don't know where that is. But I do know the spirit will wait around for as long as it needs to. I meet people on the street regularly. And they tip me on the shoulder and say, have you time for a cup of coffee? I'd say, I wouldn't, but I'd make time because I'd know what was coming. So we go in and sit down. This regularly would happen now. You told me, when I lost my husband, talk to the spirit if you ever have a problem. Most normal people do have problems in their life. Talk to the spirit. You told me I don't have to, you don't have to go to the church to do it. The best place I believe from talking to people is surround yourself with nature where there's a wave crashing against a rock or there's birds or something flying around. It's from talking to people that's where they got solace and comfort from. And church as well, going to the not uh, of all persuasions. And um, you told me ask for the help. You know, if you have a problem, a door or a path will open up in front of you. That'll solve that within a period of time. Now you also told us they won't make you win the lotto. They'll never put you in danger. They'll never put you into anything that'll cause danger. And it mightn't be you the help. It could be a grandson or something. So 
this I'd be listening to this mm. regularly. Mm. And then you'd have at the end I had a situation. Tried everything. Would it be within the medical community or wherever they went with their was illness or financial or whatever it was or grandchildren, whatever problem. Exhausted every effort. Nothing was working. I was putting two slices of toast in the in the toaster the other day. I just thought about what you said and I said, What the hell? That problem was sorted in three months. Mm. Now I get that regularly. Some people might say, just a coincidence, they got sorted. It's a coincidence that medical procedure worked. Um, but I don't think so. Mm. Mm. No, and I think the spiritual world is much greater than the one down here. Mm. Whether it's a God or what that's out there, I don't know, but there is some big force. Mm. And I reckon the crack is up there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. Yeah. I, uh, thanks a million, David. I wanted. I want to. I suppose start to bring the conversation to a close, and I really appreciate everything you, you've you've shared in your time. Um, I got. I wanted to to finish with just a piece of music, um, from the group Leithen, a beautiful song called Elron Vuinche. It's a kind of it's a lament. Um, in the Irish language, it expresses a dying person's wish to be buried at home amongst their own people. Um, and I want to send Bekas Okri, Sheila Denver, Grupalia, and her father, Sokhkad, the Hort, Kumpisa Kills, Ashemant. I just want to thank Sheila Denver for, and, and Leadon, the group, for allowing me to play this beautiful recorded piece of singing and music of theirs. But I just want to read the, the lyrics of it um, to people who don't, who don't speak the language. Um, if I were three leagues out at sea or on mountains far from home, without any living thing near me but the green fern and the heather, the snow being blown down on me and the wind snatching it off again, and I were talking with my fair Tammy and I would not find the night long. Dear Virgin Mary, what will I do? This winter is coming on cold. And dear Virgin Mary, what will this house do and all that are in it? Wasn't it young, my darling, that you went during a grand time, at a time when the cuckoo was playing a tune and every green leaf was growing? If I had my children home with me the night that I will die, they will, they will wake me in mighty style three nights and three days. There will be fine clay pipes and kegs that are full, and there will be three mountainy women to keen me when I'm laid out. And cut my coffin out for me from the choicest, brightest boards. And if Sean Hines is in Weenish, let it be made by his hand. Let my cap and my ribbon be inside in it, and be placed stylishly on my head. And Big Pawdine will take me to Weenish, for rough will be the day. And as I go west by Inchichanyev, let the flag be on the mast. Oh, do not bury me in Letterkala, for it's not where my people are. But bring me west to Meenish, to the place where I will be mourned aloud. The lights will be on the dunes, and I will not be lonely there. Um, David, I wonder if you have any concluding thoughts. One who's working so much with the dead. Any thoughts on your work or advice for the living? Well, if you do happen to come to Sligo visiting, and you do happen to pass away underneath... Remember Foley and McGowan's? <laughs> 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 You'll get the best care. You'll get the best passage. We'll send you off on a surfboard if you have to. <laughs> so. It's been an honour chatting to you. Thanks so much for your time and thanks for all the work you do. So thanks, David. Yep.
Yeah, I've got 